You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. This is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Glad to have you with us today. Hope that you are well-rested. I hope that your feet are planted firmly on the ground. And I hope your air conditioning is working. And I say that based on personal experience this week. Here in Kansas City, it was the first week that it got really hot, which also meant it was the first week that our air conditioner was called upon to do much work at all. And it was also the first day that our air conditioner failed. Because it's been sitting there like a piece of static art just located outside the house to the east side. And now that we actually demanded something of it, it just conked out on us. It did. At one point, it was 88 degrees inside the house. I was so happy when the repairman came that I nearly abandoned all social convention regarding distancing. I wanted to hug the man. I didn't. I didn't, but it I think it would have been warranted, and I think he would have understood. I think maybe it's happened to him before, but I chose not to, and he fixed it, said it was a capacitor. And of course, I pretended to know what a capacitor was and nodded thoughtfully, and suddenly we have air conditioning again. So that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Busy day today. I've been working on some notes for this evening as I get ready to teach part two of an End Times 101 class, kind of a basic intro to the idea of studying the end times and what it means and why we do it. You know, I think one of the mistakes we make when it comes to studying the end times is we think, well, let's just go to the book of Revelation, read front to back and figure it out as if the end times were a, um, an appendix or an, an addendum to the Bible. And the truth is that God's plan for the end of the age is sprinkled all through scripture. I told a story last week as I was teaching. We have a friend in Cincinnati, Terry Eckland. Some of you may know her. And uh, Terry had us over for dinner one night, and we had this fantastic dinner. And she kind of smiled and said, so how did you like the carrots? Well, I look around, there are no carrots at the table, at least I think. And I said, well, I didn't have any carrots. And she starts laughing. She said, well, actually, my kids won't eat carrots. So I pulverize them and I put them in everything. And I start looking at my hamburger and it's a little bit orange. And I realize there has been carrots in everything that we've eaten. Eschatology is a little bit like the carrots at Terry's dinner table. It's in everything through the Bible. It wasn't an add-on. It's not a separate dish. And so in this class, we've just kind of been looking for the carrots everywhere we find it, all through Scripture, how it all ties together. It's been a lot of fun. This is all part of uh, the Zoom group that we have been meeting with, this church in germination, as I'm calling it. Uh, it's not really above the surface yet, but it's there. And if you'd like to join us uh, on a Wednesday night, or maybe for a prayer meeting on another night, or uh, on Sunday mornings as we teach, if you go to zoefoundationkc.com, there will be a place you can sign up for the email. We send out an email every week with all the pertinent links. Welcome to join us, just to hang out. Um, again, it's zoefoundationkc.com. You're saying that's a weird name for a church. It It's not the name for the church. It's just the website we're using for all this. We actually don't have a name. This thing is so loosey-goosey at this point. The concrete is not poured wet. It's on the truck, and we're still adding stuff to it. And so it is the thing that has no name, 
but meets a couple of times a week, and uh, we're just exploring it and asking what God would have us do. It is a fearful thing to ask, and it is a particularly fearful thing to ask in a public manner like this, but this is what we're doing, and the Lord seems to be breathing on it, and we're certainly enjoying uh, spending time with, with friends and studying the Scripture like we're going to tonight, and like we're going to right now. I'm going to talk a little bit about Ephesians 3, which is what I shared on Sunday morning to this larger group, uh, about the motivation of Paul's apostolic prayer in Ephesians 3. Ephesians was written about 62 AD. Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and uh, it's an interesting time in his life. He is stuck in his house, and his bills are mounting up. It says he has to pay his own expenses. Uh, Can you imagine being stuck in your house while bills are mounting up? I It's like nothing we've ever experienced, except we're experiencing it right now, aren't we, with COVID? Well, his wasn't six weeks or eight weeks. He was there two years. And while most of us have taken on house projects or did jigsaw puzzles, Paul wrote Romans, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians in this season of being locked in his house. Now, particularly to the Ephesians, he writes about Christ reconciling all creation to himself how Christ unites people from all nations to him and to one another, and how Christians should live as new people. There was something about the Ephesian faith that trended towards dullness. If you skip forward 30 years, John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he writes to the church in Ephesus that they have abandoned their first love. They've just kind of had a dull spirit. And we see Paul here in 62 AD, 30 years earlier, trying to head that off, speaking of a fervency in faith that changes our life day to day. There is something about being in a majority that makes it impossible to see what should be obvious. Over the past week or 10 days, as we've listened to our black brothers and sisters, many of us have rethought about things that never seemed wrong before, and we're learning how hard those things are for the black community. When you're in the majority, you have the luxury of not thinking about these things. Culturally, most of us live in a context where Christianity is the majority. It doesn't mean that Christians are the majority, but that culturally it embraces the worldview of Christianity. And it blinds us to the actual responsibilities of being in Christ. In other words, when we read the words in Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, we've heard that for so long, we don't even think about the radical change it requires for us to wake up in the morning and say, what are the appointments you've set for me today? But at 62 AD, the Ephesians would have said, wait, 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 we we accepted Jesus, but we were created for good works? That changes everything, and it should for us too. But because we're so familiar with the language, we don't even think about the meaning Let me encourage you, read the book of Ephesians with the idea that maybe you don't know everything. It is rich, and it's just as life-changing for us as it was for them. So Paul visited Ephesus two times, once for three months, later for three years, and he describes his time there as being very effective from the start. 1 Corinthians, he says that a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. He goes, there's a lot of work to do there, but it's really profitable. And so to these people, where he had so much that he could pour into, he writes the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, there are three times when he prays. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, and again in Ephesians 6. And we're just going to look at at, uh, Ephesians 3 for a little bit this morning. 
And I'm not going to read the entire passage here. But, you know, every family has that one person that just prays for a really long time. In this case, it was not Paul. This passage is mostly not the prayer. Mostly, it is him laying out the reasons for why he is praying. Motivations for prayers are interesting things. If you study the book of Psalms and match up the events of David's life with the text that he is praying or singing, it adds great meaning. If we understand why people are praying what they pray, it means a lot more. So I want to look real quickly at the four reasons that he prays before he actually prays a very short prayer. First, in verses 14 and 15, he prays that we would understand family. He said, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Some translations over the years have said that he is the father of fatherhood. Paul has already been championing this radical idea that God's interaction with man is meant as the basis of a family. And if that was a new idea to the Ephesians, it's a misunderstood idea in our day because of the near retirement of the concept of fatherhood. In 2020, a healthy father-son or father-daughter relationship through the childhood of the, the daughter or son up into adulthood is such a unique thing that people mention it. Oh, look, he's a great dad. Look at that. It is an oddity when it's supposed to be the norm. Think about that. Something normal is now strange. And it's not just that we feel fatherhood is diminished. It has been diminished. Roughly one in three children are living without their biological father in the home. This is not how it's always been. In fact, the only time in recent history when this was true would have been 17th century Virginia, where one in three people turning 18 were fatherless because their father had died. Today, 90% of 18-year-olds' fathers are alive, but they're no longer in the home and they're playing a greatly diminished role in the life of their child, if they're playing a role at all. They're not dying, but they're gone. Now, it's delicate to talk about because people can't expect it to be, be expected to understand or appreciate what they've never had in their own life. I'm saying that because of this, we don't have an understanding of family, of God the Father, or of the positive role of authority in our lives. What little understanding we have of authority is that it should be overthrown. And if we're not actual orphans, we still value the rebellion that allows us to act like one. We fight for independence, but we do not fight for family. That seems foreign to us. And Paul says, I write to you and I pray for you that you would understand what it means to have a father. When you have a common father, you can be a family. But you'll never have what you can't imagine. Paul says, I'm praying that your imagination would be awakened to the fact that God is the father of all families and that you are brothers and sisters at a heart level. The second reason he prays for them is in verse 16. It's that God's desire would be to give you strength where it matters. He says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. One of Paul's favorite references or topics was the inner life of a human being. He's very in tune with the fact that the most important parts about us are unseen by others, but can provide great strength or great pain. 
In Romans, he talked about the battle that sometimes raged inside and outside of him. He said in 7, 22 and 23, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. We place real emphasis on our outer life, our physical health, our strength, and our appearance. And it's easy to fall for the lie that if things are going well in those realms, they're going well in all respects. Some of us are no doubt nailing those outside metrics of success and failing miserably internally. Now, I was telling the group on Sunday, I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, have been for decades. I can't explain it other than to say he speaks my language. And I've been listening to the audio version of his autobiography, Born to Run. Now, when someone has been wildly successful, sometimes it's good to hear their entire story. So I've been listening as he spent year after year playing in small bands and showing his new music to people who don't want to hear it. And finally, he finds some commercial success. His first few albums sold more than he ever imagined he would in his lifetime, but had some bad contracts and basic ineptitude on his part, meant he saw very little financial reward. All of that changed with his third album. He said he wanted to make a record so epic that if it were the last record you'd ever heard, you would feel like it was a worthy ending point. That kind of mentality gave us the album Born to Run. It was wildly successful, gave him everything that he thought he wanted. So to celebrate, Springsteen bought a convertible hot rod, learned how to drive. That's right, the guy who wrote Born to Run didn't have a driver's license. And he and a friend drove across the country to visit a house that he'd bought in California sight unseen. He was about 25 years old, experiencing incredible fame and fortune, managed to do it while steering clear of drugs or the alcohol that had wrecked his father's life. And on the outside, he wasn't just keeping up appearances, he was killing it. As they drove, they found themselves at a little street dance in a small West Texas town. No one recognized him. And then he sat there watching the locals dance and celebrate late into the night. Springsteen watched the people milling around, and in his mind, they had all been there for generations. They were all living in great peace. And he uses the phrase, I would never, could never be one of them. I could never belong here or anywhere. And it sent his inner man into a downward spiral that night that resulted in decades of counseling and psychiatry as he struggled to reconcile with the fact that on the outside he has everything, but on the inside he felt hollow. You are not supported by what others see as your strength. God wants you to be strong on the inside where it matters. And Paul is saying that he prays for the Ephesians because God has every resource necessary to strengthen us in the places where we can't strengthen ourselves. And God has committed those resources to building you up. So Paul prays for them that they would understand what it means to be in a family and that their inner man would be strengthened. And then he says in 17 and 18 that they would be rooted and grounded in love. Last year, Kelsey and I attended a pastor's gathering in New York City, and we shared an Airbnb with three other couples that we really had never met before. I guess I'd met one of them before, but we sat around at night and we sat talking about where we ministered and what the context was, and one was a church planter from San Diego, and that was interesting, and one couple had 
orphanages in Mexico and Romania, and that was really interesting. And then the next couple pastored the largest Christian church in Dubai. Now that was interesting. And as he talked about Dubai, of course, none of us had ever been to Dubai, wanted to know what that was like. He told us about a building in Dubai that's 2,700 feet tall. That's a half mile or just a little bit shy. That was as far as I got. They kept talking. I couldn't even hear anything else. All I could think of was, how deep do you have to dig to build a structure a half a mile high? What God is setting us to be a part of, what he's setting everyone to be a part of, a demonstration of his love and an expression of his kingdom, is so vast in all directions that his concern is not whether or not it will be built, but rather if we will be able to bear it. And because he wants us to be able to bear the kingdom that he is building, he wants us to be rooted and grounded in love. Not even in character, not even in Bible knowledge. All all of those things are deeply important, not in tactics, but in love. He knows if we're rooted in love, he can bring the knowledge and we'll find the character. Love is the piece that gives us the grounding for those other things and whatever else he wants to build on our lives. John 13, 35 and 36 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know my disciples if you have love for one another. When you ask people what they think of of the church, if they're not active in a church, they'll probably say things like judgmental, money-hungry, angry, self-righteous. If you want people to clam up next to you on an airplane, let it be known you're a pastor because they don't want to have the conversation. And what is awful is what they think about the church is largely what they project onto God because the church is their only touch point. Jesus' desire is that his people be known as people of love so that they would accurately reflect his character. So Paul says he prays for us, that we'd understand family, that we'd have strength where it matters in the inner man, that we'd be rooted in love. And then he says that you would be filled. The actual expression is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's almost a picture of God, of this massive tank pouring into our little tanks, and he wants to pour everything that's in him into us. say, how can that happen? It only happens when we allow things to overflow. Luke 6.45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What is the good treasure of our heart? It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. And he is praying that we would have a Romans 15 encounter where he describes in 15 verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God wants to give you enough hope for your situation and for your neighbor. He wants it to overflow in you. And Paul says, I am praying that you would be filled with all of the fullness of God, that everything that God has, he would pour into you. And you're saying, I can't even contain that. He said, I know you're not meant to contain it. You're meant to conduct it. You're meant to overflow into other people's lives. So he gets to the end of this preamble about why he is praying, and then he actually prays the prayer. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. He clarifies that he's praying to a God whose ideas are bigger than ours, and he's able to do far more than we expect, the God of the big idea. And this is what he asks, that we would understand family, we'd have strength where it matters, we'd be rooted and grounded in love, filled beyond our capacity, so that to him, to God, there would be glory in the church. You know, God has always been particular about his glory. He knew if it ended up in the wrong place, people got hurt. If God had been in preschool, his file would say, he plays nice, but he does not share. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. God has never been short on the recognition end of his glory. From the very beginning, Psalm 19, 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Some of you have had some of those experiences where you have just been overwhelmed by the presence of God just by looking at the sky or looking at nature. My good friend Rusty Gevert, when he was in high school, tells a story of laying in his bed looking out a skylight and just being overcome by the presence of God as he looked at the sky and looked at the stars. And he started praying, and his prayer was, God, you're so big. God, you're so big. God, you're so big. Rusty says he starts, like, experimenting with how else he can say what's on his heart, and all can come out is, God, you're so big. You're so big. Like, he was, he just, all he could repeat was, God, you're so big. And we are so small. Psalm 8, 3 and 4 says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is my man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? But revealing himself through nature wasn't personal enough. So God sent a better, more remarkable receptacle of his glory in his son Jesus. John 1, 14, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Suddenly the glory of God wasn't just something we imagined to know among the Milky Way of stars or the orbiting of a distant sun. It was a flesh and blood human being. His glory was accessible in the form of a man we could know and was even unto something more miraculous. Yes, he could spread his glory across the sky. Yes, he could spread his glory into the confines of a physical embodiment of his own son. But Paul's prayer is that his glory be revealed in the church. Charles Spurgeon commented on the fact that he didn't ask that there would be glory in our souls, because our souls could not contain it. But in the church, in a group of people, that they would be so full of love for God and one another that God's glory would be manifest, that's an even more amazing display of God. Paul's prayer is that to God there would be glory in the church. The church is known for a lot of things. Some of them are painful. Some of them are deserved. God wants it to be known as a receptacle of his glory. He is building a church, a family, and he wants to put his glory in it. Let me encourage you to look around at those that you call family in the body of Christ. 
and ask yourself, is there something here that people on the outside would look at and recognize as the glory of God because it is not found anywhere else? It is a deep sense of love. It is a deep sense of sacrifice. It is a deep sense of wonder that he puts within his church that draws people to him. I hope that you have a great week. I'm off to finish my notes for tonight. Again, the website is zoefoundationkc.com. A few more details there, a few archives from previous events. Hope that you have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week.